counted among the outlaws. He said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws. I found an anomaly on Mount Ararat. It's definitely a man-made object. How it got there, I don't know, and that's not for me to find out. For whoever goes up there and does it. We're on our way. We see it in every culture. The flood was a common story told, and there was an ark that saved humankind. I think the ark of Noah would be the ultimate archaeological find. This is not a normal part of the world. This is a hostile part of the world. We had the PKK, we have the Turkish army. Needless to say, they don't like one another. If we don't go, we won't know. Somebody has to take up the challenge. Let's go find an ark. I think there's so much evidence that it's irresponsible not to look. I've had my worst nights of my life on that mountain. I've frozen on a mountain. I've been bloody on that mountain. The air is much thinner. Breathing is hard. We knew we were on the brink of what could be the greatest archaeological discovery so far. We will either prove that yes, it is here, or no, it is not. you think of when you think of Noah's Ark? I think of a couple things. I think of um, little kid storybooks, little push plush, uh, little stuffed animals of a lion and a giraffe head sticking out on a, on a little boat, that kind of thing. And I also think of um, Bill Cosby. Seems like his voice is in my head as uh, you hear Noah. Well, that sounded pretty good. You might be too young for that, but he used to have a sketch. It was like seven or eight minutes long about Noah. And uh, that's aging me. But there's a lot of questions. It's a pretty important story. Is it myth? Is it real? Was Noah a real person? Uh, all over the internet, or at least the things I look at, there's these raging debates and even people's faith depending on, in their view, their faith depends on, if this story is real, I'll give you an example. Uh, I wrote, um, you know, a 60 page ebook about Noah and it, it's on uh, Amazon and such. But while I was doing my research for that, I'd come across YouTube videos and one in particular, this guy, and I'm not mocking him. He's, um, I don't know, less than 30 years old, but he was literally in tears and heartbroken because he th thought his faith was ruined based on him finding uh, geological evidence that a worldwide flood could not have happened. Ergo, uh, Noah's story isn't true. Noah, it's a domino effect. Noah's story isn't true. Therefore, none of the Bible can be true. None of the Bible can be true. Where he thought he had hope, he has no hope. And he's just living in a dark, vast world of empty void soul. Uh, so it sounds dramatic over a story. Is it myth? Is it, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And there's those that just hold on and say it's true the way it's written, no matter what, because the Bible says so, uh, kind of like closing their ears to science and geology. So I, I thought it was an important topic to talk about. And <clears throat> I'm bringing in Kevin 
DeVries, who's considered an explorer. Uh, he's reached five of the seven continental summits. He's explored, I believe, 64 countries. You can correct me if I'm wrong. He skied the North Pole. He's um, He can leap over tall buildings in a single bound. And he has led several expeditions to Mount Ararat of people who believe in this enough that they're willing to go to some of the most hostile terrain in the world politically in Turkey, climb a mountain um, that you probably pass skeletons on, frozen skeletons on the way, it's not for the faint of heart, that truly believe that they're going to find remnants of an ancient vessel that a man named Noah built. That's hardcore belief. And um, the, one of these expeditions was featured in an award-winning documentary, Finding Noah. Uh, Kevin has a more recent um, documentary entitled The True Summit. He's the founder and the president of an organization in Grand Rapids called Grace Explorations. And um, welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me on, Ken. Sure. So that was my intro. Uh, what say you on the, well, you've been with guys, before we get to your personal thoughts on it, you've been with guys and led them on Mount Ararat, where scripturally, the Bible says, uh, if I remember right, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Is that how it's worded? Yes. Yeah, it's plural. Okay. So in, in a, before we get to, I'd like you to summarize the story of Noah for those that only know of a cartoon coloring book kind of version of it. But um, how do you search on Ararat? The scripture says the mountains of Ararat. How do we nail that down? Have we nailed that down to a certain peak that everybody keeps going up or looking at satellite images? Or is it a range and you're just kind of, it's like shotgun? Well, the scientists that I worked with, and again, they're, this is their life discipline and their calling, so they're immersed in it. But um, they believe that the plural version of that was that uh, it was actually right there. You could see it every day that you were climbing. There's a greater Ararat, which is at 16.8, and then there's a lesser Ararat, which is right next door. And that's like in the 12 to 13,000 foot range. Both of them are um, dormant volcanoes. And so from their perspective, that made the mountains of Ararat plural. And that's probably been there since antiquity. So they came at it from that angle. Uh, there are many other explorers in the earlier decades that uh, had somewhat of the same results that we had inconclusive and have felt that the mountain that they should be actually searching is in northern Iran. Um, and it's interesting, the word Mount Judy can be translated in a couple of different ways. It could actually mean a literal mountain called that, which uh, is actually the name of this mountain in Iran, or it could be uh, the saddle between um, the actual summit and the eastern plateau of uh, Greater Ararat at 16,800 feet. So there's debate over that, and it, that's the hard part about when you are basing your explorations on, you know, the writers of antiquity uh, going all the way back, you know, to uh, Genesis. It there's words that are in there that are not, that didn't necessarily make it all the way through the millennia. And so you're trying to do the best that you can with the clues that you have. Um, but the guys that we were working with felt, then they were mostly young earth scientists. They felt like this mountain was a, it was the best option. It was an ancient Mesopotamia. So it's the highest peak in the entire region. 
which would uh, make sense if you're going to make landfall after a, a you know a, a, a global flood. So their logic was, okay, it's the tallest mountain in the region. It's plural because there's a greater and a lesser Ararat. And there is a number of eyewitness accounts that place some type of vessel in the Eastern Plateau, which during various periods of history was more exposed than others, uh, namely due to uh, warming seasons that were protracted over numerous years and then more uh, items, structures, whether they were rock or wood or an arc would be exposed more than it would be in a colding trend. And so the mountain, um, especially since the advent of aviation has been a real big hotspot um, for exploration because there's a number of anomalies that are on that mountain that uh, look very arc-like. It's, it's almost a cruel joke, but there are numerous rock structures, jutting ridges I can show you pictures. I mean, if you're hypoxic like we were, it doesn't take a, a huge leap of imagination to imagine that what you're staring at is the whole of a ship. You're hypoxic. You're not thinking straight anyway. 16,800 feet. You've you've sucked out at least half of the oxygen that we have at sea level. So unless you're acclimated, you're going to be passing out. But we were somewhat acclimated. But you're so looking- hypoxic is something where can you uh, be de- can you can you be can you see del- are you delusional? Uh, no, but you're, you're not thinking straight, you know, (laughs) I've watched guys digress into like first grade emotional level. You're just, uh, your brain does weird stuff when it doesn't get the oxygen that it needs. You're thinking clearly, uh, there could be some, you know, uh, hallucinations that are going on. Now I don't say that to diminish the integrity of what we were trying to do because we were trying to let science speak for itself. So we had, Uh, We were going based on technical eyewitnesses. So unlike other expeditions that were solely based on eyewitness accounts, we were dealing with technical witness, which um, was through remote sensory satellite observations. Uh, And then that's great, but you still need to put boots on the ground to figure out what what is this anomaly that's underneath the ice cap that happens to look uh, like a structure, like a ship that fell out of the sky, and it roughly fits the biblical dimensions of the ark. You know, what is this? Well, you're not going to know until you put boots on the ground. Otherwise, it's mm-hmm. just conjecture. So that's what we were aiming to do as we spent all of our time on the eastern plateau, which has got about 100 foot uh, of ice at its deepest point, which could very well conceal a structure like the Ark, similar to the pharaonic sunboats, you know, in the Nile Delta being buried in the sand for millennia and being perfectly preserved, or the Viking ships. If you've been to Oslo and gone to the Viking Museum, uh, Viking ships have been preserved for perpetuity and in, in the bogs of Scandinavia or, you know, the woolly mammoths, those are kind of the bigger stories, um, you know, where they're stuck in the permafrost. And as the world is warming, they're becoming more accessible to uh, people that randomly happen to fall on them. So that was our hope was that there was a structure buried under the ice in an oxygen free, bacteria free environment preserved for perpetuity. And we could drill down and excavate timber that you know, would have to date if if you're following the Orthodox biblical timeline would have to date at least 4,500 years or older. So, uh, if, so is this kind of a high level of the process is satellite imagery to me would be everything. You can't just go out and scour a mountain like that. You got to have someplace you're heading to, right? Something yeah. was seen, identified, it's an anomaly. You head in that direction. And when you get there, you're drilling through the ice. 
And realistically, they're not really looking, expecting a full intact ship, right? Aren't they really expecting maybe, like you said, debris of yeah. wood? The way it was explained to us, and you can read about it in the Explorers of Ararat, it, it basically chronicles all the expeditions leading up to ours. And maybe that's in there now. I haven't read it recently, but you can get it on Amazon. But they take uh, explorations decade by decade. And the individual that we were getting our information from who is blacked out in the screen, we call him Mr. X in uh <laughs> And finding Noah that Gary Sinise narrated for us, um, he basically said, look, there's two pieces there. I'm not a believer. I don't believe the story is true, but it looks like as if a ship fell out of the sky and there's a spectral trail of debris between these two large pieces that are uh, right in the eastern plateau, almost approaching the Ahura Gorge, which is uh, a natural phenomena. The mountain actually... Um, there was a massive earthquake. That region is is a, a huge shifting tectonic plate. So there's massive earthquakes that happen in Turkey all the time. It's not unusual. And that particular region is is not immune to that. And so I believe it was in 1820 or somewhere thereabouts, about a third of the mountain actually collapsed. And that became the Ahura Gorge. It's about 6,200 feet down. So it's deeper than the Grand Canyon. And we're camping literally a couple hundred yards from that. So it's really important that when there's a whiteout condition, you... Uh, have a sense of where you're at because one wrong step and you're yeah they it's a long way down more than a mile so um yeah they were he was telling us look there's a spectral trail i don't believe in this story but it's an anomaly but i you can't prove anything until you get boots on the ground and so he's giving us this information and then he's further helping us to try and locate it um in real time so as he's looking uh via the satellite uh technology that he has he's able to tell our our jacket colors, where we're moving. But the problem is, and there's a couple of complexities here. The uh, curvature of the earth is one thing, the position of the satellite, like my kids uh, go to a school and they had a 10 minute window to talk to someone on the space station this year. That's all they had, 10 minutes mm-hmm. because of the uh, gravity, the earth's, ro- the, um, you know, the earth's rotation and um and the satellite's rotation. And so you have these brief windows. So he would be looking at us, but that's not a, a that has a certain window of reliability. So you're dealing with the Earth's curvature, you're dealing with the positioning of the satellite. Um, you're also dealing with a, a area that has tremendous geopolitical tension. So to not allow uh, different military groups to have exact coordinates, they'll scramble. So if you talk to pilots, there are various parts of the world, particular to demilitarized zones, where um, they can't use their normal instruments because uh, they've been disabled. And so that's the other deal that we were working through. I mean, we had one, the very first year, we had a backpack that we were wearing that actually coordinated like 13 different satellites. So we had about as exact as you can get. The problem is we almost had to end up going old school, compass and Boy Scout orienteering to hit the coordinates that he was giving us. Um, and then you deal with the factor of the Howard, Car- Howard Carter phenomena. You know, he dug for many years for King Tut's tomb, and it wasn't until the final year. And they were only a couple feet off. But if you're a couple feet off, you might as well be a thousand feet off. Yeah. So you're dealing with uh, a lot of very imprecise calculations. Plus, you're dealing with, with ice, which is kind of like a broken windshield that doesn't have the same... Um, computations are the same display that you would have on dirt. So most of the time when people are using ground penetrating radar, like finding a, you know, a lost king in England, they're doing it in a parking lot and they're going through dirt. Well, we're dealing with ice, which 
has different dialectic values between old ice and new ice. And then there's all these uh, glacial moraine material that is uh, layered throughout the ice cap where the crevasses open up and all this glacial moraine, this dirt, uh, fills into the cracks. And so it has this marbled effect where you're dealing with anomalies under the ice and you have to figure out, is that wood? Is that rock? Is that basalt? You know, what is this? Well, we don't know until we take core samples, which is an arduous task because it's you have to constantly keep your drill bits moving. You're putting them, you're attaching them a meter at a time and you're going down to 60 feet and one slip and the whole 60 feet of of connected um, drill bits are frozen and then, you, then you're done. Now you have to dig a hole to get out your drill bits and that's Herculean to dig a eight by eight hole at 16,800 feet, uh, 40 feet into the ice, which we did on, on three occasions is Herculean. And you only have one window to do that. It's not like, okay, we'll dig one hole and then we'll dig another. No, that's all you have because guys' bodies are wasting away up there. Um, atrophy is setting in. Your body does weird things when it stays up at high altitudes for long periods. You're losing muscle mass to the extent that some of these guys can even climb down on their own two feet. They feel fine up there. They don't realize what's happening. And then they get into more oxygenated environments and they realize that, wow, my body is actually going backwards. Like with astronauts, these guys that are coming back, I mean, they're still setting this stuff and they will be forever, but guys that go into space, it, it does harm to your body without yeah. a doubt. What? So, um, so if you were up there and you put a drill down, you're pulling up ice and debris or whatever, and you pulled up planks of wood or whatever, piece of shreds, um, then what? How do you know, how would the world ever know or accept that this is Noah's Ark and just not a nice geological or a, a National Geographic moment that they found a historical boat or something? Yeah, you know, the problem with that mountain is it attracts a lot of charlatans throughout the millennia. <laughs> um, everybody's looking for, you know, there's one guy that claimed he found like everything. I mean, from the blood of Christ to the spear of Christ, to the wood of the cross, to the chariots of the Egyptians. Uh, I mean, just go down the list. This guy was like a self-proclaimed Indiana Jones. And so you get guys like that, that just can never admit that they're wrong and they're delusional. They need actually to visit someone <laughs> who can help them unpack their messianic complex. So you're dealing with people that are not well, that come in and they bring this circus with them. And so all throughout the ages, people have been fabricating stories there. So you're starting from a point of high criticism, high doubt. I mean, the story itself is fantastical enough. It's probably the most fantastical story, if I can borrow Peter Jackson's favorite word. It, it's probably the most fantastical story in all of the biblical narrative. And so you're starting with this deep suspicion uh, the critique is very high right from the get-go. It seems like every year somebody's finding Noah's Ark. I mean, that's calmed down a little bit because the mountain has been a bit off limits uh, due to rising political tensions there. And just the fact that, you know, there's very few places in the mountain that could actually hide the structure. Uh, one of yeah. which is the Horror Gorge, which, you know, that's pretty much, I mean, we show short clips of it. We had some guys that got close to that area from the bottom looking up. And it's, uh, yeah, if you want to die, that's the place to go to. Uh, so people are like, well, why don't you just put a drone up in the air? And I was like, you know, that's great. And we did have a smaller drone and we had a military grade drone that never made it through customs in Istanbul. Uh, that sounds fantastic. But you have to remember, you're in a demilitarized zone there. There's incredible amount of 
there was one year where they could fly helicopters in to rescue people. Every other year that we were there, nothing gets up in the air because it'll get shot down. So you can right. put a drone up and do whatever you want. It still doesn't prove conclusively what you're looking at. So my personal takeaway of it is people always ask me, what did you, you know, do you know where it is? And I'm like, well, we know where it's not. So right. it's more of a uh, Thomas Edison approach, you know, a thousand tries in the light bulb and, and you finally find the one, but it took a thousand tries it still could be underneath the ice cap of the Eastern Plateau. I highly doubt it. I think that a lot of what we were looking at was uh, the different dialectic values of old ice and new ice, plus uh, different layers of strata of glacial moraine that uncannily uh, somehow um, were deposited in the rough dimensions of the arc, the width and length and the broken pieces. We weren't looking for something that was 500 feet long. We were looking for two pieces that were smaller. But, uh, you know, I think for the scientists that were on board, their faith was strong. Um, I know the skeptics, you know, they're always looking. But you have to go back to, again, the Old Testament. There were all kinds of miracles happening every day, and people still didn't believe. So yeah. if your faith is built on sensationalism and all these things have to align before you can believe, then you're coming at it from the wrong approach. Because our faith is not about some guy in the Old Testament or a story which I believe is historical because when Christ mentioned in the gospels, which are very reliable documents, um, even though he was a master of uh, theologic metaphor or metaphoric theology, he uh, treated the whole account of the flood as historical. So um, if, if he treated it as such and he's got uh, access to information, I don't because I'm not, I mean, he's part of the Trinity, so he has access to all knowledge, along with being human at the same time. I think it would it would be in our best interest as humans, uh, finite humans who have an eternal spirit to also uh, agree with the same, that it is a historical matter. I know there's scientists, guys like Robert Ballard, who's done a tremendous amount of research in the area. Um, if you don't know who he is, he found the Titanic, which is, you know, a big story in the news. And so they're having in quote, you know, what does he think about the submersible that collapsed and imploded? So he went down into the Black Sea, which is a very fascinating story. I think it was on ABC, like maybe 10 years ago. They did a series of, 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 um, of retelling the biblical stories and fact and fiction and all that stuff. And so they were obviously going to talk about Noah's Ark and the flood and the deluge and, and the and what happened in that moment in time. And so he came at it from the angle, which a lot of um, non-faith-based scientists will come from, is that, yeah, there's probably a story here because it obviously went worldwide before there was global communication. I mean, even the Chippewa Indian tribe in Michigan has a story very similar to the biblical story, except it's a canoe. Um, and in other cultures, you know, it becomes a raft or some circular object. So there are cultural uh, adaptations but somehow there's an original story so most people agree that there was some uh, catastrophic event that was mm -hmm. uh, something that embedded itself in the human consciousness something that became a meta-narrative where the debate is was it global was it regional and so he came at it from the angle and this is a very popular theory that developed a few decades ago that there was a regional flood it was localized to that area and it happened as uh, during the melting of, of an ice age period and the water that um, was coming off the ice or that was becoming liquid again was so strong and so powerful that it actually carved out what we now know as the Bosphorus, which is the uh, channel of water that literally separates two continents between 
um, Western Turkey and Eastern Turkey between Europe and Asia, and it spilled into the Black Sea. So the Mediterranean has been salt. It spills into the Black Sea. The Black Sea is a very, uh, it's a bit of an anomaly where there is a mixture of salt and fresh water. And as you go lower, apparently the salt rises higher. And I hope I'm accurate in some of these uh, terminologies. This is not my area of discipline, but um, it, it is a dream for guys like Robert Ballard, oceanographers, to go into the Black Sea because the water is so clear and fresh further below that it's almost like the Great Lakes. That it, It's like things are frozen in time, whereas in, in saltwater areas, um, things corrode quickly. And he came away from that expedition. You can watch it. It's on ABC News. Just Google Robert Ballard, uh, National Geographic, Noah's Ark, and it'll pop up. Um, but he came away with conclusive evidence that the Black Sea at one point was a lot lower than what it is currently and that there was shorelines that existed at various levels. Uh, and it appeared as if people had left suddenly, like there was some catastrophic event where all these structures and items were left behind. And it was, again, like frozen in time. And so he could see these lower shorelines. So there's no debate about that. And I think that's true of almost anything. I mean, we can find out the Great Lakes at one point were a lot lower and certainly a lot higher uh, as they've been glacial, uh, carved out of glaciers. But um, he came away with this idea that, you know what, something happened. And it may not be totally true from his perspective, true to the biblical narrative, but he came in as a scientist, as an oceanographer, and he proved that there was some catastrophic event that um, happened in the region. And then that became the story, the meta narrative that found itself literally uh, retold in about 500 different uh, cultural groups. So yeah. it's a phenomenal thing. So when we approach this, we realized, hey, this is a huge story. This is a watershed moment. You don't get many opportunities in life to be part of something where, you know, this is not just about finding a ship. You're actually finding a lost link to a lost civilization. It's a link maybe the last link to the antediluvian world, to the land of dinosaurs and man living to be a thousand years, you know, what we read about in Genesis and what fossil records show. And so there was a bit of an Indiana Jones national treasure feel to it. It's like, wow, if we find this, this ship, you know, on top of a mountain, I mean, you can't even hardly explain that. Uh, you can't explain it. There's just no reason for it. And it fits some of the language of of the writings in Genesis, um, wow, it could be something that would be very, very upsetting to a lot of academic communities that have to rewrite their exhibits at their, at their, mm -hmm. at their museum. So this is a watershed moment. So the scientists, uh, many of them were a bit older than me. This was kind of like their magnum opus. I mean, this was going to be their life work. And you can't, apart from maybe finding the Ark of the Covenant, which is more spiritual than it is physical, uh, there's, it's hard to argue that if there's anything that would be greater uh, to change everything from A to Z, anthropology to zoology. I mean, this is just not a theological yeah. story. This is also, it affects and impacts all levels of scientific disciplines. This could be a watershed moment. And so we came into it with that type of energy. Um, but I think the bigger picture, the, you know, that's more micro, but the, the macro picture, the bigger picture, the meta narrative really is as a believer, um, I can only speak for myself, but I think I can speak collectively for those who call themselves followers of Christ. Our faith is not based on an Old Testament story. I think it happened because Christ said it happened, but I also believe it's an immortal diamond. I believe that all the stories that we read in the Bible are diamonds. And as such, they have 
infinite uh, angles, infinite ways of interpretation. It could be literal, poetic, spiritual, allegorical, metaphor. It, it could be all of those things all at once. It doesn't have to just be limited to a literal. And so you'll see in the, the uh, Jewish people understand this better than we do because they value story more than we do in the Western world. But they see all these parallels, you know, the 40 days and all these parallels with Jonah and with Jesus and this whole rebirth and the tomb and these cycles that Joseph Campbell really talked a lot about in the power of myth that there's these, um, you know, the heroic quest, the hero's return, these stories follow the same cycle. And so there's, uh, I believe it literally happened, but I also believe there's poetic application. And so I, I view it more in a poetic lens because that's just my orientation. It's the way I write, it's the way I think, it's the way I live life that there's symbols there. And so I walked away, uh, my faith was, you know, as intact as it was before, because my faith is not based on an ark. My faith is based on the ark of our salvation, which is Christ. And that's, uh, anybody with any um, intellectual honesty, you, you have to admit that for, um, that the resurrection is the fulcrum of our fate. That's the access point. And if that didn't happen, then everything we believe is untrue. And then you have to take a couple steps back and do a forensics on it and do, you know, maybe take the approach of a skeptic, like how in the world could 12 guys and a small group of women and in a small community of people, how could they literally change the world in a lifetime if the story wasn't true? Like, how could these guys give their lives? I mean, we know that with the exception of the Apostle John, Christian tradition teaches us that all the original disciples were martyrs. They died for their faith. And it's like Chuck Colson said. It's one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to butcher it. But he basically said, hey, look, there were 12 guys involved in Watergate, and we couldn't keep in Watergate again for those of you that are young. It was a big incident with Richard Nixon, and, and it resulted in his uh, resigning. And then Gerald Ford came in, one of our Grand Rapids guys, and became the president. But uh, he was implicated in that and, and uh, went to prison and then started Prison Fellowship, one of the largest, maybe the largest prison ministry in the world. But he said, look, there was 12 of us guys involved in Watergate and we couldn't keep our story straight for a week because it was based on a lie. They were all telling lies. He said, you have to take it from the approach of 12 guys over the course of their entire lifetime, their stories are perfectly collaborating with each other. How it's it's uh, mathematically impossible that the story is not true. It just doesn't play out that way. People will, people don't die for a lie. They only die for the truth. That's the only thing that's going to bring them to the stake or to the spear or to the ax. That's the only thing that's going to bring someone to that point of conviction. And so my faith is solidly based on that fact. And in fact, uh, a contemporary individual that a lot of people are aware of now, Jordan Peterson, has been wrestling with this for years. And I remember him writing like three or five years ago. He said, I'm a couple years away from um, either accepting or denying the resurrection of Christ. And he was smart enough. He's brilliant. He's kind of a modern day C.S. Lewis, I think, um, that he realized that the real fulcrum of our faith is not these uh, Old Testament stories, however true they are, and however um, important they are, the fulcrum of our faith, the access point, the cornerstone is the cross of Christ and specifically the resurrection. And he's now come to a place where he can't explain it as brilliant as he is, but he has, he has a certain knowing, a spiritual knowing that uh, Christ did indeed rise from the dead. His daughter, uh, I think converted shortly before him and his, his wife has been a believer uh, even longer than that. 
And so these are really important things. I always try to remind people that really they're just trying to either make the Bible say something it's not saying, or they are more of a biblicist where they know the Bible, but they don't know Christ. Like if you ask them, when's the last time you had a conversation with, with the divine, you know, where you feel like God was speaking to you, there's just a blank, but they're super quick to just recite a bunch of Bible verses. Right. And it's like, guys, you got to be really careful with this because there was a group of people alive during Christ's time and they still are here because we're part of it. We're part Pharisee and we're part prodigal. We throw mud and we wallow in mud. And then we have to figure out that we're beloved sons and daughters and we come home to Christ and to ourselves. But there's a group of people in Jesus's time that knew the Bible really well, but they couldn't identify Christ even when he was standing right in front of them. Right. And Literally so talking like, to them. Yeah. It's like the truth. The word is right in front of you. And so people <laughs> are like, well, the word is Jesus is the Bible. No, that's not true. Uh, he is the word of God that created all of creation in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 and and the Gospel of John and the Book of John and in Revelations, we certainly see this clear picture that Paul, notably, and, and the Apostle John are, are very clearly portraying that the Christ, the anointed one. I mean, when Peter had his revelation, he didn't say, hey, you're Jesus. Well, everybody knew he was Jesus, which is like saying he's Bob. Um, but he said, no, you are the Christ. You are the anoint You are the Messiah. You're the one who's been prophesied. And that's the difference between the Peters and the Judases out there. They both did the same thing. They both betrayed Christ, but Judas never called Christ Christ. He always said rabbi, and he was always looking at it through um, a Zionistic perspective, I believe. And so his hopes were dashed because what he thought was going to happen didn't happen, and he became disillusioned. And so I also remind people, look, um, the people in, in the New Testament, <laughs> they didn't have the Bible that we had. Yeah, they had the Torah and yeah, they could maybe read it uh, in the temple and maybe some of them had private copies. I don't know. I'm not a scholar to be able to play that all out, but it wasn't like they had direct access to the scriptures of the Old Testament. It was in the temple and, and yes, there were some private copies, but they were sacred scriptures that were read by the priests on certain occasions. And orally, uh, it was tr you know brought down generation to generation because the literacy rate was, I'm sure, a lot lower then. But think about for the first 300 years before the Bible the New Testament as we have it was before it was curated and canonized in the third century and then became a state religion with Constantine. Uh, the people that lived in those first 300 years, they had the stories of Christ, but they had something that a lot of Christians don't even know what to do with. They had the Holy Spirit who guided them into all truth, who guided them into a relationship with Christ. And so we have a bunch of brainiacs running around nowadays that are trying to computate cerebrally what has to be accepted on a spiritual level and it's it's contemplative it's transcendent and the buddhists get this better than most christians they're much more better at meditation than we are and contemplation buddha always has his eyes closed the eyes of christ are always open so you need both you need to be inward and outward um, otherwise you have an imbalance in your life but i think that for those that are looking at this story and they're looking for yet another reason to throw away their faith because boy this isn't conclusively proven and they didn't find the ark they only know where it's not yada yada i would say to them you're looking at the wrong thing you have to go back to the resurrection deal with the historical fact of that there's secular accounts there's spiritual accounts it's not just the bible telling us that that happened and you have to deal with the reality that something must have happened that was miraculous, yeah. that also paved the way for our own resurrections. And I'm fortunate because I've had a near-death experience, so this is a lot more clear for me. 
then maybe people haven't gone through that. I say that with great humility because it's actually changed me in ways that uh, make life now even more difficult because I've caught a glimpse of the other side. But you have to go back to the fact of, uh, does, do I know Christ and does he know me? And, and yeah, believe the stories of the Old Testament for sure. But that's not what you're going to, that's not going to get you to the place where you want to belong for eternity, where, mm-hmm. where you have to believe is, is he the Christ? Did he resurrect? Do I have a relationship with him? And is my life, uh, is my communion with him so intimate that I don't have to weaponize the Bible to make it say maybe something it's not, or to prove that I'm smart or to prove that I'm religious or some piousic attitude, but it's more of, wow, I want to live like those people in the first three centuries that didn't have the new Testament that we have today, at least in an organized sense, but they had stories and they had a personal revelation. They had a visitation of Christ and they had the Holy spirit inside of them that guided them into all truth. Yeah. Well, John said, you know, you'll, They'll know God by how you love one another, not specifically how much scripture you know. And and what you're saying is they're talking at a time when they didn't have that much scripture to go by. So people only knew God through their true relationship with God. And that leads me to think of like, because I feel, uh, you know, I found Christ and I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me that if anything my faith then doesn't ride on exactly am I young earth believer or an old earth believer yeah, or a Noah right. believer, or if some scientific finding on this or that doesn't shake me at all. Um, I believe all of scripture is true. There may be some interpretation. I had a false reading of it. Yeah. It was portrayed in a way that, I didn't understand and I read it differently, but it never shakes me to the core. And I think of when I opened this, I talked about this poor guy on YouTube whose whole faith had crumbled because he specifically found out that not only were there myriads of uh, flood stories similar to Noah, that there was one before written before Noah. And I, I, I think they call it like from Gilgamesh or something. Yeah. And that crumbled him completely that in his mind, his faith is based on history and geology and science, not on a relationship with Christ. And then he could find out later, which I don't know if he ever did. I thought it through and my mind would say, well, just because Noah wrote an account second even doesn't mean it didn't happen the way Noah said. If the, the original happened the way it was, the world um, repopulated after about eight people. So the story would have spread all over the world because it's a part of all cultures ancestry. They would have all had it verbally handed down and somebody in Gilgamesh wrote it down first. (laughs) And then God would have revealed to Noah exactly how. Yeah, there's there's debate on the timelines of the Epic of Gilgamesh and and the biblical narrative. Like that's not a conclusive. I mean, you're it, we see what we want to see, right? right? And that's the danger of spending five years on top of Mount Ararat. As I realized that some of our team members were struggling with objectivity. They, um, it, it's you just you want to see what you want to see, and until you can see what really is, 
and let it speak for itself, then you're, you're never going to find uh, that freedom. And so, yeah, I mean, archaeological discoveries happen all the time. And in many cases, they are revealing or confirming the biblical account. They're confirming biblical stories with historical fact because yeah. they're finding this stuff. So our lead archaeologist, that's what he does. He's an Indiana Jones type of guy, and he bounces around between Mount Ararat and the Qumran, the peninsula there, digging amongst the uh, Essenes. And then we he also was part of a... And I was for two days, so I can, I guess, say I was part of the team, but I didn't <laughs> do hardly any of the dirty work that many of them did. But, you know, he found a Dead Sea Scroll cave, the first one in like 60 some odd years um, mm. that had uh, all the anecdotal evidence of, of uh, that it once contained Dead Sea Scrolls uh, to the point where they even found some very, very small fragments of uh, the papyrus and goat skins and shattered vases and, and all that stuff. But... Yeah, we just got to be really, really careful with this, that our faith is a, it's a spiritual thing. It's, it's not even a physical place. It's not a physical thing. It's spiritual. And so if you don't come at it from that angle, if you can't get into that space where you believe that we are a trichotomy, that we're actually spiritual beings having a human experience, if your worldview is just the opposite, that no, we're non-spiritual beings having a limited human experience, and then that's it then everything that you look at will have to fit that narrative, yeah. which I believe is ultimately false. But if you can come at it from, I'm a spiritual being first that just so happens to be having a limited human experience, then uh, all the pieces can start to come together. Then you don't spend your whole life uh, collecting, but you actually are starting to connect the dots. And that's, that's a hard, it, it's like the Indiana Jones. I know that's the big thing now because the latest, uh, iteration of it is in the theaters, but you do have to take that leap of faith and uh, step out and believe that God will meet you in that place. But how do you describe, you know, faith? How do you describe how we believe and what we believe? It's it's uh, it's more than knowledge. It transcends that. It's more of a knowing. Um, so I tell people, look, if you want to argue about this stuff, I'm not your guy. Just bring your Bible to heaven and and uh, you'll have all of eternity to figure it out. I have a recollection of you, Kevin, um, way before you were ever going up on Mount Ararat and all that, looking for Noah's Ark, standing in your office, oh man, I don't know, quarter century ago, we're pretty old, and uh, you're doing church work, but in your office, you'd have pictures of you whitewater rafting. Oh, wow. Uh, whitewater that? rafting, you were <laughs> like, there'd be pictures of you climbing probably some mountain or something there'd be a picture there were all these like adrenaline junkie pictures of you in various <laughs> places in the world doing crazy stuff from early on so what from that kevin to uh more life lived kevin and what you call a near-death experience i call a death experience when he actually died um, but you put your whole life experiences together and then looking at those same fun and adrenaline things, has that changed for you motivation wise or your viewpoint of why we do what we do or what drives you to that kind of life? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, this could segue really well into the latest, uh, venture that we've had. I took, we took a group of, uh, 14 men last year to trek to Everspace camp. And I'm 55 right now, um, so 
I'm not as enamored about just doing stuff just to do stuff like another notch, another trophy, another uh, thing you can brag about at the water cooler. That doesn't really animate me anymore. It, it just actually means very little to me. But if I can take a group of men and we can make a film out of it and we can talk about some um, some ideas that we can use uh, and juxtapose against the mountain, now I can get excited because now this thing will outlive me. It's not just another adventure and, hey, it was great, but yeah, only 14 guys know about it. And there's something wrong with that, but what if we could take what we learned and put it into a film? It was the place in my life where I was so poor that all I had was money. It was all about me. I'm going to have a successful business. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to summit every mountain. I'm going to journey to the ends of the earth. But I found myself in a very desperate situation where I felt totally disconnected from my own story. There's a tremendous amount of despair when you enter into that space where you don't feel like your future is going to be better than what it was in the past or ever will be. I just felt that I was fundamentally flawed. you into some some pretty dark moments you know where you're trying to process do I still want to stay in this story the whole idea of going to Everest and uh, to answer your question I'll kind of do the roundabout here but we took uh, the group to Everest because we wanted to use the dramatic landscape of the Himalayas which has no peer it's peerless it's it's um, there's just nothing like it in the world I mean it's it's the largest tallest craziest mountain range in the world where even the foothills are taller than most of our continental summits. So it, you are left in awe. I mean, yeah, there's some ego attached to it because you feel like you're conquering the mountain, but it also at the same time makes you fall in love with oblivion and embrace humility because you realize that, yeah, maybe I could climb these things, but I also feel very small because compared to them, I'm really a little dot. And so it's very humbling. Um, at the same time. And so we went and we wanted the viewer to get the sense of, wow, they're going up. But as they're going up to Everest Base Camp and climbing Kalapatar, a neighboring peak at 18,500 feet, which we got some really dramatic uh, drone footage, we wanted the viewer to feel like they were going in. And so the whole idea of the film was, and this is a John Muir quote, that you're not in the mountains, the mountains are actually in you. And so we were trying to create this idea of that again it's spiritual that the true summit is not a physical place it's actually a metaphysical space and you could actually climb everest without climbing everest and it has more to do with you making the inward journey of discovering through your past what your future may look like what healing looks like what transcendence looks like what recovering from trauma looks like and um there's a line in the film that came out of my mouth and again we're at 17,500 feet. So it's amazing that we could even think. And we only had one day to film at Everest Base Camp because then we turn around and, and come back down again after we spend the night there. But I said something along the lines of, um, if you don't know who you are, you'll always be defined by what you do. And then at the end of the film, we take what I said right after that. And, and the director was smart enough to realize, hey, wow, we have bookends here. So let's start with that statement and then end with the, the other part of it, even though you set them almost together, um, that our identity has to be found in Christ, in God, 
uh, even more general, that we are beloved sons of Almighty God. And if that's not enough, then nothing is enough. Nothing will ever be enough. And so part of my journey, and this is part of the maturation, I think, in the masculine journey, and just what healing looks like, is you start out um, as a younger man doing things to identify who you are. And there's nothing really wrong with that. That's more of the warrior phase where you're you're just trying to figure out what am I made of? What are my limits? What can I do? You know, how good am I at this? And so you're constantly defining yourself by doing stuff. And so it's a very busy, active part of your journey. It happens for most men in their 20s and 30s. And they're at their peak athletically and, and they haven't maybe had enough failures to realize that things can sometimes go wrong. And so you approach every mountain like, hey, I'm going to climb this thing. Nothing's going to get in my way. And I was very fortunate that all these major climbs that I did, I always summited on the first ascent, which is remarkable because climbs like, uh, well, it used to be McKinley, now it's Denali. You know, you got a 50% chance of getting to the top. And it's not that you're a bad climber. It's just the weather comes in and it's not happening. It'll sock away, you know, climbers for 10 days at a time and you run out of food and fuel and you're so demoralized. I mean, you can only live in a tent for so long with hundred mile an hour winds beating on you. You know, you just literally feel like you've, you got the crap kicked out of you. Um, I, I walked into these mountains in my twenties and thirties with just a very idealistic, um, approach and also was asking the mountain to do something that it wasn't meant to do, which was to define me. So the mountains can't heal you. It can be part of a cathartic process for sure. I mean, the, historic, the biblical narrative is filled with prophet, priests, and kings ascending mountains for different reasons, whether it was to sacrifice themselves like Christ on Golgotha or um, whether it was Moses getting, you know, revelation and the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai or, you know, um, a king ascending a mountain or a prophet to have some encounter with, you know, false prophets. Uh, there, there, there's all this poetic, literal metaphors that's floating there. But my orientation has changed, especially in my 50s now, where I'm more interested in helping people uh, climb the Everest within because I believe uh, that that's actually harder than climbing Mount Everest itself. It's a heck of a lot easier to just climb a mountain and maybe something cathartic happens and maybe something transcendent happens, but it's limited to that moment. And yeah, you don't forget it. And you can take it down at the valley with you, but the mountain, you're, you're not in the mountains. The mountains are in you. So until you conquer it, and Mallory was figuring this out. Unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to um, totally play it out, but he's one of our central characters that we talked about because we just so happened to be on a hundred year anniversary of his first attempt on uh, the north side of Everest in 1922. And so we were there in 2022, 100 years later, and he has a bunch of killer quotes, uh, some of which are alleged and some of which are are written. Uh, everything from, you know, why do you want to climb the mountain? Well, it, it's because it's there. And then more along the lines of, you know, have we conquered the enemy? No, we've only conquered ourselves. And conquering means nothing out here. And so uh, we were trying to take that approach of, of, um, of this idea that if you can't do the 18 inches getting out of your head again which fits in with the noah story if you can't get out of your head and sink down those 18 inches into your heart which is where the deep life happens the bible doesn't say that the uh, wellspring of our being is from our brain i've never heard a preacher say hey every head bowed every eye closed how many of you want to accept jesus christ into your brain today no it's always heart there's something mm -hmm. about the heart that's emblematic of the human spirit the eternal spark that's in us and maybe it's not the exact correct word, but it's the closest that we have to this word called spirit, the eternal part of us. And 
um, you know, that's what we're trying to get people into is if you can do that 18 inch journey by getting out of your head, which is where your trauma lives, which is where your false narrative is living and get into that feeling zone where you're not just dealing with a bunch of facts and figures and more information. And if I just get the right amount of information, I'm going to transform myself. It's like, no, it doesn't really play out that way. It's helpful. But I know a lot of really smart people that are actually in some ways, some of the dumbest people I've met. It's almost like the more plaques I got on their wall, they just got dumber and dumber because they entered into the cerebral world to the abandonment of their own heart and they became robotic. They could give yeah. all right answers, but it was computated. They couldn't give anything real because in the process, they almost denied their own humanity to the extent that they don't even know what their heart is anymore. They, they've lost heart, which is a terrible place to be. And so we tell people, look, if you can't do the 18 inches or go 18,000 or, you know, do that small inward journey, then you're forced to go 18,000 feet or go 18,000 miles like I did to the North Pole. Um, because you always, and this is really critical for people who are trying to enter into recovery of whatever, if you can't, uh, internalize your own journey, you will always be forced to externalize it. You'll always have to go 18,000 miles, 18,000 feet, because you can't do the 18 inches. And so a lot of the people that I climbed with and adventured with are not with us anymore, um, because they, well, it was math, you know, if you're going to do step in the mountains or in the polar regions, it's just a matter of math that someday your number is going to come up. And uh, they kept pushing and pushing. And I noticed that a lot of them had the same struggles that I had with PTSD and uh, broken relationships and, and just a trail of shame that you're always trying to outdo with success. And it is always eluding you because you're trying to make the mountains do something that it can't it can't heal you. You have to go to the Messiah. You have to go to Christ. You have to go on this spiritual journey if you ever hope to recover and be redeemed. If everything you're talking about is what you do with grace explorations, uh, and it's primarily men, right? What's an overview of what you do there? And if there's either people listening that would be interested in getting the materials, or if they happen to be near, if you explain what a base camp is, yeah. um, in your website and before you answer that i'll tell you i felt the um impact of that or the expanse you're having the impact you're having with grace explorations uh i don't know it was a couple months ago i was i spoke at a christian business luncheon on this side of the state and uh there were some people talking one of the guys talking in the middle was excited his first time he found the group and um he's sharing with them these rubber bands to put around their wrist i have mine in my car it was about uh, there's always hope it says something like that mm -hmm. and what he was is he was starting a ministry online ministry anyway of awareness and trying to connect a brotherhood of military vets um awareness of suicide mm -hmm awareness and prevention and he brought up to the group i was standing with uh that he was so excited because he heard of this base camp nearby uh this group of guys that get together oh, wow. and talk and he's going to connect with them and make this see if they're interested in hearing about what he is and um i know that guy who does that and uh it's a good group that's all i told him i said uh i said that's a good group Go ahead. Because he was kind of like questioning the group. I think I heard about this. Well, I heard about this group and I'm thinking, I said, yeah, go do it. It's, it's a good, yeah. good group. They're connected to something bigger and in Grand Rapids. 
Yeah, so Grace Explorations, um, our mission is uh, very simple. We help ministries reach men. So we partner with churches or anybody that's trying to reach guys. And we predominantly work, we major in men, but when you touch men, you touch families, you touch marriages. So it's never just about the guy. And then now we have a film that anybody can watch. So it has had um, a broader appeal. Our vision is to connect a million men to a men's ministry uh, through gospel-centered storytelling events. And we're just on the cusp. Uh, we have to finalize some things, but it's it's trending the right direction. We uh, are hoping to be able to take the True Summit and put it on uh, the Pando app, which is what inmates use to uh, get information now. So um, and for those listening, the True Summit is your recent documentary. Yeah, that's the Everest documentary. So uh, we're pretty excited because now base camp is without borders. I'll get to the traditional, our signature event here in a moment, but we're now seeing that base camp is again, just like the film. It's, uh, it's not a, a place, it's a space. It's a place where, you know, prisoners can become patients. It's a place where uh, the broken can become, you know, beautiful. It's it's not uh, limited to a brewery or to a barn, which is what we've been mostly holding our signature events at. So now we have this idea of, hey, wow, what would it look like to get this film into the hands of, of prisoners who got, who quite frankly are a captive audience, pun intended. And so we're partnering with a um, prison ministry, and it looks like uh, it's going to go through. But that'll that'll be ex accessible to like 300,000 inmates at this point. It's a, an incredible app that started like two years ago. They've already had like 70,000 recorded decisions for Christ. Um, and it, it takes Christian faith-based content and it puts it right in front of a prisoner through their tablet, just like a Kindle or you know an iPad. Um, and so we're really excited about that. But the traditional format that has reached now like probably 7,000 men in person. So these numbers are hard numbers. It's not like you put a podcast out and you know, it, who knows what those numbers actually mean. I haven't quite figured it out. Um, but these are guys that got in their vehicle. They drove, I mean, old school, Hey, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to carve out. And they mostly happen on Sunday night and they mostly happen in barns and breweries. And they're, it's, it can be very simply defined as a safe place where dangerous stories are told. Uh, what we notice is that men in particular love stories. And we've been doing this since we drew, have been drawing pictographs on caves. You know, we love to talk about adventure, near-death experiences, fishing stories, hunting stories, stories of redemptions, you know, heroic journeys, all that stuff. We are just hardwired for that. And so we began to think about, you know, uh, partnering with churches, but not doing what churches do. So our goal is not to get men to church. That's really the church's job. Our job is to get churches to men. So where do men hang out? Well, we now know that they hang out in prison <laughs> by the millions. Uh, so let's reach them there. Uh, we also mm -hmm. know that dudes love to hang out in breweries and, and wedding barns and just, you know, bonfires. And so we thought, well, what would it look like if we took gospel-centered stories and told them and just created a super easy on-ramp for a guy to bring his buddy instead of saying, hey, let's go to church and see how uncomfortable you can get. And, you know, sometimes it's a very effeminate uh, atmosphere and so these dudes are like yeah i'm just not into that um but hey why don't you let's come on over and uh go to blah blah brewery and let's have a beer and a guy's gonna tell his life story oh yeah that's great what else am i doing on sunday night right so um they've been showing up and guys have been inviting their friends and it's been a huge deal we started out with one at founders in 1997 and sorry 19, 2017 i'm getting too far back 
and we couldn't figure out what was going on because hundreds and hundreds of guys were driving uh, hundreds of miles in some cases. Like, man, this is, I mean, Founders Beer is, you know, it's, it's a global product, but it's not that good. But the real secret was we were creating an experience for these guys that totally defied and offended their religious sensibilities. Like they've been taught since they were a kid, God doesn't show up in breweries. He only shows up in church. You want the good stuff. You better come Sunday morning. And these guys were coming to these meetings. They're like, I can't explain it, but I'm feeling the presence of God while I'm having a beer. And I, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And it's kind of like, well, maybe now you're back to the wedding of Cana. And hey, just to make a full circle, uh, Noah liked his beer, right? <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> and there's all kinds of imagery there, too, you know, of what actually happened. It wasn't just about getting drunk. There was the, the Jewish people get it. We don't. Again, I think we misinterpret a lot of the Bible as Western people because we want a three-point sermon. And it's like, no, the story is the sermon. And by taking the frog out of the swamp and dissecting it, yeah, you figure everything out and you critique it to the point of killing it. But you've actually lost the sermon, which was a story. And Jesus, well, with the exception of maybe the Sermon on the Mountain, but we probably had to do that for, um, you know, to curate it properly. But really, he was just about telling stories. And so... Yeah, we just tell these stories and guys are just like shocked that, uh, you know, I'm feeling something and I'm sensing something that I haven't sensed in a while. And then they begin to think, well, what would it look like if I ever got to the point where I'd have enough guts to tell my story? And these are stories that, for the most part, will not be told on Sunday morning. They're more R-rated. Yeah. Uh, some of the stories that we tell, I think moms would be clutching their children, you know, quite frankly. Uh, these are these are stories for big boys. These are stories for men. This is not a this is not a male ministry. This is not a boy ministry. This is a man a men's ministry. So we tell people it's kind of like Vegas. What's talked about here doesn't leave. So it has a recovery feel to it. But we're not sitting in a circle. We're still doing the whole story thing where the people are there and the storyteller is here. But then we also follow that up with Q and A uh, because we find that guys learn a lot just by asking questions in a group, and then it really makes it for a group um, learning experience. So that has grown, and that's our first stage. That's all we had for a couple of years is just, hey, come hear a story. And then we began to realize, you know, that's just really the first stage. The second stage should be us helping them to retell their story. Because if a man can begin to understand that his story is part of God's story, that God is actually telling his story through their story, now you're giving a guy his, his shattered sword back. Now his sword is being reforged. It's emblematic of his story. And now you're giving him back his identity. You're giving him back his honor. Um, you're giving him back ultimately a strength. And so we try to tell men, look, if you can't own it, speaking of your story, you're never going to be able to offer it and you'll never be able to give it back as strength. So we created a video series called the retelling your story. It's a seven part video series where we have an expert story guy, Matt Kenny, um, help men discover what that looks like. And we actually simulate it in real life with small groups. Uh, and we capture that all on video so guys can see what a small group like this looks like and what open-ended questions look like. And how do you go after a man's heart? Because most of life is about digging dirt. Very little of it is actually going for gold. There's a lot of uh, people out there that will remind you of who, of, of what you've done wrong, but there's very few places where you can be reminded of what is right about you. And so we try to say, hey, look, we're not about policing original sin. Like there are ministries that'll do that. Good luck. That quite frankly, doesn't sound Christ-like at all to me. I don't even have the energy to do that. But 
uh, I do have energy to help pursue your original glory. So I'm less interested in policing your original sin. And hey, what did you do bad this week? And how can I shame you into not doing that? I'm more interested in saying, you know what? I think a lot of your problems are, you just don't know who you are. You've forgotten who you are. Um, and we're here to remind you and to call you up into something higher. And so men respond really well to that instead of being browbeat, instead of being emasculated, or instead of you know hearing words to the point where you're drowning in it of toxic masculinity. It's like, let's just leave all that garbage behind and let's go after the gold. Let's speak life into men and let's do what Christ did, which is to call men uh, what they originally were and who they are actually supposed to be, which is uh, beloved son of almighty God. So that's the second step. And then the third step is just to join a tribe. And so we try to get men to realize that, look, we're not about a curriculum. You can graduate from that. We're about a community and you really can't graduate from that. These guys are going to care about you. Uh, it's kind of like a Christianized version of cheers. We're happy you're here. We're glad you came. Everybody knows your name and, um, there's no agenda. Uh, we don't have like a vertical leadership line where there's some expert that knows everything and has a really polished, perfect life. Yeah, you won't find that here. It's flat, just like it was from 30 to 33 AD. That's where the magic all happened. It was the original men's movement. And it was before the Bible, <laughs> the New Testament, you know, so nobody's weaponizing Bible verses to beat each other up. It's just about men doing life together, following Christ, bending their knee to Christ but everybody is under everybody's authority. Everybody is a Pope and a priest and a, and a pastor to everybody. There's no uh, vertical lines, so you don't have to hide anything. You don't have to be uh, some religious robot that's you know, computerized to give right answers. We're after the real stuff, because when you get real, then Christ can make you right. Uh, but until that point, you're just gonna be, yeah, I don't know what you would call them. I use the word religious robots. So we are really good at handling the shame part, the sin part God deals with that's vertical. But we tell man, if you're going to have your shame healed, which every man bears all the way back to Adam, we're always covering, we're masking, we're posing. All humans do this. It's not just endemic to men. Um, the only way you're going to find the cure for that is you have to let other people help you. And that's horizontal. You've got to tell your story in a safe place, all of it, or as much as you can. And then in the process of owning that, uh, you'll be able to offer it as strength. And then you come back full circle. And now you're like, okay, I can not only tell my story, but I can live it. And now I've got my sword back. I'm not Aragorn in Middle Earth, you know, with the broken sword for wandering around as a noble exile. I have my sword reforged and I know who I am and I know what I'm supposed to do. That's powerful. If you can help a man do that, you can change the world. Yeah. Well, you guys do good work. I'll leave. Uh, so the best thing is to leave the on my show notes the link to your website. Yeah. Right, yeah. I'll do that. All right. One final question. Um, in all your years of climbing and hiking or whatever, you have to have some opinion. Not only if I already know your opinions now, if Noah was real, if the ark was real, the flood was real. But I need to know, are Yetis real? <laughs> well, um, you know, they took us into a, a monastery, a Buddhist monastery, and there's a shriveled up claw in there, you know, that, uh, <laughs> and I think even the Sherpas were kind of getting their giggles out of it. But again, I think these things are all emblematic. Like there's a spiritual world out there. And I think that we're just grappling with how do we process it? And so we, we gravitate towards these phenomena that are not explained. And it's because there's something innate in us that knows that there's another dimension out there that 
cannot be explained. The best and the closest that we can get to it, it has to be expressed poetically, which is what good movies do and what good writing does. It takes the unexplainable and it expresses it, but that's as close as you're going to get. You just can't put words to it. And I think that all these stories, they're all symbols. They're like stars in our galactic universe, and they're meant to guide us into all truth, but we often misinterpret them because we don't have the right lens. We don't have the right eyes. And someday you'll have the right eyes, and you'll see it all for what it is, that this was just a little blurb, you know, this human timeline, uh, but that there's that the real real, that, the, uh, that our real life actually just begins at, at death. It's just a door. So I don't, yeah. I, there's probably some species that are out there that are kind of in between, you know, antediluvian and in our world. I mean, fossil records can are clearly indicate that there were some strange animals running around before whatever catastrophic event, whether it was an asteroid or a flood or whatever, you know, did away with them or the, the climate changing. But um, I think we have to look deeper and just realize that maybe maybe what's going on is this deeper narrative of yeah, there's stuff out there in the world that we'll just never never be able to understand, and, and that's okay. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the time. Kevin, among the outlaws, he said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws.